Welcome to another edition of the MSU Work Life Podcast. I'm John Girdwood, and I'm sitting here in 116 Linton Hall on a very snowy late February morning with Barbara Roberts and Morteza Mahmoudi. Could you introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at Precision Health Program and Department of Radiology. Here at MSU, I've started my uh, faculty position here on last July, so I'm pretty new to the environment. And my main research is in uh, nanomedicine and regenerative medicine, and I use them for early diagnostic and treatment of catastrophic disease like cancers, neurodegenerative disease, and cardiovascular disorders. So you're relatively new, came in July. I came to East Lansing myself end of April. So put us together. We got about a year of experience between us here in East Lansing. Barbara Roberts, though, you've been with the MSU Work Life Office since I would think sometime around 2016. Is that accurate? 2015, yes. 2015. And uh, when you came to Michigan State, what was your uh, role and what have you done in those five years since you've been here at the Work Life Office? What does the Work Life Office really focus on? Well, the Work Life Office is a central resource for all employees at the university, faculty and staff and postdocs, to look at how they combine work and personal lives in a more harmonious and productive way. I like to think that it's about making work and life compatible, not competitive. Yeah, it it has a history in, the Work Life Office has a history in the Women's Resource Center and the Family Resource Center. And now as the Work Life Office at Michigan State, we are doing even more to integrate our lives of employees outside of work with the lives uh, and the time spent here at work on campus. And that leads us to today's uh, discussion, which is about bullying, incivility, and toxic work environments. That's a little bit uh, less of a positive topic than our past topics have been about. Usually we talk about fun stuff and the weather's nice and we talk about how great it is to walk outside in the gardens and stuff like that to have a more positive work environment. But but today we're talking about something that's not as fun to discuss and that is bullying and incivility. And um, it does occur here on campus and so we thought we'd sit down today to address it. The first thing that I'd like to talk with you both about uh, to set the groundwork for our discussion are some definitions. So I'm interested in this idea of bullying and incivility. I know bullying as kind of a hot topic in the United States has been kind of focused on like elementary school kids, you know, kids bullying at school. So what's the difference between that incivility Uh, standard bullying and academic bullying. What's the difference between academic bullying and plain old incivility, Barbara? Well, any kind of bullying um, comes from a power imbalance. And in an academic environment, the structure of progress through the ranks and obtaining tenure and getting grant funding and access to resources um, has inherent in it tremendous power imbalances. And so the setting is sort of rife with opportunity to exert power over people in a number of ways. Um, The hierarchy of faculty and staff and postdocs is very conducive to an abuse of power imbalances. And so academic bullying is bullying that takes place in an academic setting pertaining to academic kinds of issues and utilizing academic kinds of power imbalances. 
um, garden variety bullying, if you will, that happens to everybody um, in all kinds of workplaces and on the playground. Um, when you think about it, is the workplace is the playground when you grow up. And bullies on the playground grow up to be bullies in the workplace because they don't know how to we don't know as a society how to deal with that very effectively in children. And then we teach people through that inability to address it that those strategies are effective and they go on and occur in the workplace. And then our usual human motivations and, and blind spots uh, to our own interactions foster uh, some less than successful interactions in the workplace. So it isn't any different. It's just more grown up and in various contexts. So academic bullying is around academic issues like funding, like tenure, like um, lab resources, um, and all of those things that we've built in to move people up through the ranks. Bullying in other settings um, is similar in the abuse of power. It's just in a different context. Yeah, and here in the context of the university, uh, as you mentioned, Barbara, we have uh, a lot of different layers and levels. There are a lot of different types of staff. You know, it's built right into our our pay scales. We have a, a you know, ranking levels and stuff, so it's hierarchical by structure, and that creates some power imbalances um, just by the nature of the structure of our environment. Uh, I'm a relatively young uh, academic myself, so I'm at the lower end of that spectrum of levels, and being new here, me and Morteza are new to the university. So we're early in our careers. At the end uh, of the career, later in the career, uh, individuals tend to get um, a little bit more uh, academic freedom. And so there's some constraints on me being early in my career, but you know when you're tenured, there's a little bit more academic freedom. So Martez, I'd like you to talk about that academic freedom and how that plays into this discussion of academic bullying. Uh, I'm thinking academic freedom, there's this gray line between academic freedom and what might be considered academic bullying. Can you talk a little bit about that? So before that, I just want to uh, add a little bit of my views on a, like a previous question about the incivility and academic bullying. So I guess uh, incivility is a, a small portion of like bullying in general, workplace bullying. Uh, but the large difference between like uh, incivility and academic bullying is that academic bullying spans a wide spectrum of actions. And uh, those actions, uh, some of them actually, happens in a regular manner and in a, like a, a period of time. Um, and um, like Barbara mentioned, school bullying is like well publicized compared to the academic bullying in higher education. But I would say that academic bullying is the evolved version of the school bullying. And it, it has many other actions uh, which is not about verbal abuse as public shaming and, you know, isolation. It also has like uh, violation of the intellectual properties. It has um, unfair crediting of, and the environment and context are different, which we can talk about that later, later on. Uh, but regarding academic freedom and academic bullying, um, 
uh, to me, it's very uh, unfortunate that uh, uh, some people basically um, put a gray boundaries between these two. I mean, for me as a scientist, um, there's a clear, if not intuitive, differences between academic freedom and academic bullying. Academic freedom basically means that um, the ability of a person to express his ideas and uh, debate over intellectual concept without fear of any kind of retaliation. It's a two-way street, though, and by that I mean that it's not just a PI that can criticize students. It can be the other way around. And it should be in a polite and constructive way. So this is academic freedom. Academic freedom basically creates a safe environment for like uh, doing research and drawing new conclusions. Um, for example, my research, like I mentioned, is in nanomedicine and regenerative medicine. And that's why Michigan State University hired me but they don't prevent me in researching academic bullying. So this is academic freedom. But academic bullying, like I mentioned, spans a wide spectrum of action. It has like verbal abuses, like ridiculing students. It has public shaming, like putting students in front of others. It is like isolation. Um, It has, like I mentioned, like unfair crediting Uh, of others or violating their uh, intellectual properties, forcing uh, lab members to sign away their rights, and uh, last but not least, uh, threatening over their future, like threatening over bad recommendation and jobs. Yeah, if I could just um, add a couple of points there. I think um, when Morteza says that things like putting students up in front of others Um, or similarly um, ridiculing or shaming colleagues in front of others, Um, there's a difference between having a student do a positive presentation and giving them constructive feedback that's polite, respectful, and growthful versus um, humiliating someone with personal attacks or personal criticisms in the process of doing a presentation. So uh, one of the elements that needs to be borne in mind is the idea that bullying – you know, people will say, well, it's about feedback. I'm just trying to teach them that's going to be like this in the real world. They better toughen up. But those things um, are to the detriment of the student or the colleague, not to their growth and advancement. And it's very ironic. I like what Morteza said about academic freedom is supposed to create a safe environment for ideas to be openly and and constructively shared. And yet academic bullying is exactly the opposite. It pre- presents an unsafe uh, environment and and academic freedom is not the freedom to be abusive of others. Um, it has to be exercised with wisdom and respect and responsibility. Yeah, I, this thought crossed my mind when you were uh, both giving your answers to those questions about this idea of public shaming. Uh, academic bullying can occur in public, but then we can. Um, those individuals who are targets can then process that public shaming in private. So it's a very interesting um, 
phenomenon where the uh, instance occurs perhaps in public, maybe at a meeting or in a, a paper authorship or something like that. But then the individual target might process that public shaming uh, internally, and that can lead to uh, some real detriments in their health and well-being. So I'm going to shift to uh, some of the outcomes of uh, academic incivility, academic bullying, uh, and I'm going to ask uh, Barbara about uh, how does bullying make us unwell? You know, like there's one thing to be publicly shamed. Maybe our reputation is hurt. You know, a little bit of our ego is diminished. But are there other manifestations um, of academic bullying that can make uh, an individual target feel unwell? And how do those um, play out? Well, thanks, John. I think um, I should come back to your original question that will lead into the answer to this question, which was the difference between bullying and incivility. And I think we can think of bullying as something that is targeted typically at an individual or a group of individuals or a certain kind of person, perhaps. It's repetitive, it's pervasive, um, and it, it has a pattern to it. Um, incivility, on the other hand, may be the sort of rude, inconsiderate behavior that people exercise towards anyone and then write it off as my personality or my freedom of expression. Um, rude language, personal criticisms, uh, the kinds of things that someone might sprinkle throughout a department, not targeted at an individual or group, not as a pattern, makes it much harder to address, but it's also sort of a lower order of magnitude um, in terms of impact and, and atmosphere and how you address it. But how all of those things contribute to people being uh, more or less well and their well-being in the workplace um, I sort of think of incivility as something that an entire unit might share with someone who is um, profane or obscene or disrespectful in general. But when you have bullying that is targeted and patterned and aimed at someone, it really destroys a person's ability to concentrate at work. They don't feel safe to do their work. It influences the questions that they would raise, the information they would seek, the support that they obtain. And that undermines people's um, cognitive and medical um, metabolic systems. So concentration, memory, and attention and ability to organize is impacted. Self-esteem is affected. And then when you're talking about physical impact, sleep is affected. People's blood pressure rises. People's heart rates go up. Um, and all of the medical conditions that are exacerbated by those factors are then worsened. So you get a wide range of physical uh, and cognitive impacts from bullying that is sustained and repetitive over a period of time. I would also add the fact that the circle of influence is not individual to the targets. Basically, you can imagine in medical context, when a clinician is bullied, it may affect their uh, serious medical decisions, which can affect patients' health. Mm -hmm. or it can affect their family relations. So um, it's, it, it, it also indirectly or directly uh, affect other peoples as well. Um, like, again, uh, like uh, what Barbara said, um, I want just to add that uh, another main issue between, like, workplace bullying and um, academic bullying is the fact that academic bullies are clever. 
they know how to pressure students and scholars over personal meeting and phone calls instead of putting things in email. They basically leave no trace. And this makes the life harder for the targets because they don't have documentation to back up their basically claims and allegations even if they want to seek help. Yeah, because when we're in the university, we're talking about bullies who have PhDs and master's degrees and have been uh, researchers for a long time. So this is a clever, smart bully we're talking about. So you're adding so many different layers onto the standard phenomenon of power imbalance bullying. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, Barbara, I'm interested in the resources for those who are targeted um, by bullies, either academically or in the workplace or both. Um, those types of physical and psychological um, harms that can be uh, felt by those targets. Is there anything at Michigan State currently or that we're building in the future that are resources for MSU faculty and staff? Absolutely. Um, My first go-to referral, of course, is to the Employee Assistance Program, or EAP, for personal confidential counseling and support, partly to give people a way of of speaking their truth and being heard and seen and validated in their experience, and then also to help develop strategies uh, that build personal resilience. Um, The Work-Life Office is working on a number of educational strategies around workplace and academic bullying in order to help the community understand that this is an observable, nameable, credible phenomenon, and that there are strategies we can use to counter that and to establish a more positive work environment where people are aware of how behaviors and actions impact one another. Um, I always recommend that people who are feeling bullied begin a chronology. Keep a journal. So you have dates, times, locations, quotations. Write it down. As Morteza said, there's very often no trail, and you have to create your own trail. And that does two things. It establishes a pattern of behavior it makes you feel like there's somewhere you can put this down, and the next time it happens, it's evidence, not just victimization. Um, So tracking it, keeping track of it, and then developing some strategies, which we advise folks on. There are a number of resources on campus you can get advice about in uh, the Office of Inclusion and Intercultural Initiatives, the Office of Institutional Equity, if it's based on a protected class uh, designation. Uh, human resources, academic human resources, and our insurance also covers external counseling. So there are lots of resources, um, and I think the biggest thing we need to work on at this point is education. Yeah, so there are some uh, resources right now, and then there are some future things we can do, like Barbara mentioned, uh, educating folks on campus and throughout the university about these issues. Mortez, I know you've done some research and are currently conducting some research about these issues, but we're we're in between sort of a rock and a hard place because there's no real um, apparent, blatant incentive to address bullying. So we're talking about highly educated individuals who might be at the university and bringing a lot of money to the university. And we need money to function and we need researchers to function. So if we bring up this uh, topic of academic bullying and we start to educate uh, the community here at Michigan State about these issues, how can we address it from an institutional level uh, without any real incentive? Is this a losing 
uh, proposition or do you have some ideas about some possible solutions to this problem? So that's a tough question, but um, I would say institutions can do a lot in diminishing academic bullying. One of the first things they can do is that, like sexual harassment, they can make a training, very easy training to clarify academic freedom and academic bullying at the beginning of the employment to all of the MSU family. And it's valid for other institutions as well. So there would be no excuses in future that I didn't know or I thought that it's academic freedom and not academic bullying. The other thing is that, like I mentioned, academic bullying are clever. Institutions need to like allocate specific budget to address academic bullying. And this budget is essential because they need to establish an expert investigation committee that are like have different lenses of expertise to look at the issue and validate allegations. And after that, Institutions can create a trust between targets. They can easily publish one or two examples of the allegations of what happened, basically, to the uh, to the uh, uh, targets and to the perpetrators, and what options university offered to the targets, and what was the like fate of the perpetrator after. Uh, the allegations being validated. Again, the universities can make like policies, well-defined protocols, because uh, we lack the policies and protocols around academic bullying. And the sad thing is that academic bullying is unethical, but it's not illegal. So it's it has a different context compared to sexual harassment. Universities should have like uh, zero tolerance such as what they do for, like, uh, uh, sexual harassment. I I think it is, uh, just to build on that, really important that institutions take a public position on these things because they're unethical but not illegal. We can have internal policies that say we don't tolerate this kind of behavior, and it's not a list of actions. It's a principled definition of characteristics of behavior so that various actions can be held up against those principled um, standards and say, well, does this fit a definition of, for instance, being illegitimate? It doesn't have a legitimate purpose. It ought to be known to be unwelcome, and it creates a hostile, intimidating, or toxic environment. Um, So you can take a number of things like whether interrupting in this meeting fit that definition or whether this email that you sent fits that definition so that we have a more systemic approach. And with a protocol and policy, as Morteza mentioned, we can see what we expect, what will happen if you complain. Targets and bullies can see what the process is. It's transparent and accountable. And that empowers us to take steps, having educated our community. We can then say, y'all know this. Here's the process. We're invoking the process. Um, I think the other thing I wanted to mention about an imperative to address this or, you know, what what uh, motivates us to, what incentive is there to actually act, is that, as we mentioned earlier, bullying is a toxin. It's a health hazard. And we can document the impacts on people's health. And we have an obligation, theoretically, if not uh, enshrined in regulation, to provide a toxin-free workplace. And uh, that would mean, by extrapolation, a 
a harassment-free workplace. And this is such an intriguing conversation to me because we're talking about identifying behaviors and we're talking about educating and training people about behaviors and we're not uh, looking at this necessarily through a punitive lens, at least that's my perception of it. Um, so it's really interesting because we've identified this issue and we're not talking about creating a policy to punish uh, someone, but we're uh, talking about educating and informing uh, people across campus, especially through trainings. So with that being said, Barbara, what is a training going to look like if we were to create one at Michigan State? And also, after you uh, answer, Morteza, uh, I'm thinking from the College of Human Medicine, it makes me think intervention. You know, I've worked in a medical clinics, so we always talk about interventions. So I'm thinking of the training and the education as an intervention. Barbara, what would that look like? And then, Morteza, if you could uh, follow up on what uh, Bar- Barbara's comments are. So a training would look like having some uh, consensus around a definition, like the one I just sort of threw out there, has no legitimate purpose, ought to be known to be unwelcome, and creates a hostile or toxic environment. So when we have that, which we are working on at a number of levels, then we need to teach that to folks so that we can say these are the kinds of things, this is the principle that senior administration and and Michigan State University hold as sacrosanct values and and principles that we want to act on. So we teach people what this is, what it is not. So performance evaluation, legitimate feedback, constructive um, criticism that's done politely, respectfully, and impersonally. So not saying what a jerk you are, but saying this paragraph is grammatically incorrect. Um, When we have those kinds of things well understood, then we have a platform for having implementation of a protocol managers can use to go back and say, remember we taught you these principles? Well, this conduct that I'm seeing violates those principles in this way, and here's how we're going to do this as a performance review kind of approach or as a complaint kind of process. So we have to roll out the education so people have an opportunity to think about that, reflect on their own behavior. They have a chance to know what they're doing or not, and people who know that have an opportunity and a means of which to call the behavior. So for me, that's what the educational rollout would look like. Um, And as Morteza pointed out, we know how to roll out education about sexual harassment. We know how to roll out education about LGBTQ issues. We can do this. We need to identify it as a value. We need to have a clear characteristic and principle-based definition and teach that to people. I like your metaphor of like medical interventions. So for Many type of disease, when we do medical uh, interventions, they could be painful, but they are not punishments. They are a help to fix the issue. So I think we need to also take the fact into consideration that a perpetrator might have been a target in the past, and he or she had not get a chance to heal or deal with the agony of being targeted and there's a known psychological fact which is called identification with the harasser which maybe put them in that position so like you mentioned we're not punishing the the policy is not to punish anyone it's to help both targets and the perpetrator i think that brings us back to why it's actually a positive topic because we're talking about how to make the workplace more positive and constructively teach one another how to be more productive and 
happy and build a place we want to be in rather than running from something we just don't know how to deal with. It's remedial. It's not punitive. And, and like, a stop being a company for future bullies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, being early in my career, I plan to be here for a long time. And uh, I would like this to be an environment that is preventing future bullies, either homegrown or uh, welcoming into this community. Because this is just a place that I don't want... Uh, bullying to take place. And I guess I, I do want to clarify my uh, comment there. I'm not looking to prevent bullies or prevent um, a bully from coming into Michigan State. I'm, I'm focused more on the behavior. Uh, so uh, it, just talking it through makes me think that if there's some bullying occurring at Michigan State here, again, I want to uh, reiterate that I don't think we need to necessarily clean house of bullies, but we may be able to reverse some behaviors or um, be more uh, positive in our intervention. Uh, it, it's going to be painful. Morteza, you bring up the pain aspect, and uh, it makes me think of this root canal I had this week. It was very, very painful. Uh, but I think uh, this week I'm feeling a little bit better, and I'm chewing a little bit more uh, foods, and I get to eat pizza today. So the pain was worth it. Uh, and, and to use the bullying analogy, I didn't uh, extract my tooth. I just improved the tooth. And uh, now my mouth is a better environment for the pizza that I'm going to eat this afternoon. So, uh, You also, Marteza, bring up a very uh, interesting thing uh, for me to think about, which is perpetrators may have been past targets. And uh, that opens a lot of doors for us to discuss. I want to uh, shift the conversation specifically to targets and uh, who the current targets are in the case of some perpetrators, past targets. Uh, I, it makes me think of vulnerable people at Michigan State. We've talked about the power dynamic and the hierarchical structure. So, Barbara, we'll start with you. Who is most vulnerable um, to be a target of bullying? Uh, I'm going to think it's those folks who uh, have a little bit of a power imbalance relationship with their colleagues who they work with. Who are those people at Michigan State? Well, there are, I have sort of two answers to that, and I'll be interested in Morteza's uh, perspective on this as well. Because on the one hand, you know, I could spew some uh, typical uh, demographics around bullying um, that, that we have found through various surveys on campus. So people of color, um, people with disabilities, uh, anybody who's identified as a marginalized group often feels it more so than the typically empowered uh, groups. On the other hand, really having worked in the field, um, my previous position was all about working on academic bullying and advising the president on bullying and harassment. And I found that bullying crosses all genders. It crosses all uh, professional status boundaries. People bully up, they bully down, they bully sideways, uh, they bully across gender. Um, I, I really, uh, in my experience, can't say that it's um, unidirectional or typical in any way. Um, I'm sure the literature would refute that and come up with some compelling demographic differences, but um, I think the point is it can happen anywhere to anyone and so don't think that because this situation of mine would never be that, it may very well be that. Um, 
and bullying up is a thing. So you you can be a supervisor bullied by your admin staff or by your faculty, or it could go the other way around. Um, I think the issue is um, more to realize that it happens where you might least expect it than to assume it does or doesn't happen in any particular scenario. I think it's important to remember that a lot of times targets are people who are highly skilled, very competent, very confident, and so often think it can't be happening to me because I'm powerful in my career, I'm successful, surely this isn't happening, I must be crazy, this person must not be doing this to me, this happens to other kinds of people. And targets are often very successful, highly accomplished people because someone in a position of some kind of power or authority is jealous, is intimidated, um, is threatened in some way, or just plain wants to exert power over someone who appears successful and accomplished and autonomous. So those of you out there who are targets and find yourselves in a position of feeling very competent, don't think it can't happen to you. I can't agree more with what Barbara said. Uh, I just can like add a few more scenarios. Like, um, I think that maybe international students could be also vulnerable more than domestic students, and the reason is that there are cultural and language barriers. They are powerless in terms of having less support by their family and friends. And many of those are dependent to the visa, if we consider like here in the U.S. And the other thing I want to add is that some labs may be like more vulnerable to the bullying behavior. And the reason is that uh, like if the competition for joining the lab for reputation, for publication, for anything else is high, it means that any lab leader can be easily replaced by another. So it causes willingness to tolerate among, among targets. And um, the, the culture of that particular lab would be different from the entire university. So this is one thing that I wanted to point out. The other thing is that some PIs has financial conflict of interest. There might be positions that an idea looks very interesting to them in terms of bringing them to the like the commercial point and make money out of that. And we see a couple of those items in the academic parity movement, which in the, this case, they force the targets to sign away their rights of intellectual properties, and right after, they cancel the visa. So there's no chance for the target whatsoever to follow up the case. What types of... Uh, situations are most prevalent for group bullies to exist? So it's a, it's a very uh, common type in bullying called mobbing, is ganging up against someone. And again, based on our survey, which is ongoing and we uh, currently received like over 1,200 responses, and the cases that we basically receive through uh, academic parity movement, it basically happens when person tries to uh, speak up. When they uh, speak up, basically, you can imagine that the, the members of the lab 
or even the lab leader, which were which have been basically in the department for a long time, have connections, and uh, they can basically gang up against targets and make like some unrealistic uh, allegations toward him or her to basically back off. And that's one of the main reasons that we have less trust in like speaking up. Because like one survey showed that less than 2% of the targets wants to speak up and report to the university. One of the main reasons is the fear of uh, being mobbed. The laundry list of reasons not to report as, some, as a target uh, is long. And how, how are we going to overcome that? I know we're not going to answer that question in full in this one-hour podcast. Uh, but Barbara, what what are the sort of um, protections in place, and are individuals safe to report instances of bully bullying at Michigan State? And if so, who should they report to, um, or uh, are they going to get fired this, as soon as they report, you know, an instance of bullying? What's the case here at Michigan State? Well, that is really the the nub of the question, isn't it? Is what's going to happen if I come forward? Um, And I think the first thing we need to understand is that retaliation is in itself, by definition, a form of harassment. So uh, bullying is a form of harassment, and retaliation for complaining is also harassment. Because when you think about it, you can't have a system that encourages people to come forward and complain if that then leads them into further danger. So you have to then also make sure in your educational initiative that people realize that any form of retaliation for someone filing a complaint or raising their issues is, by definition, also harassment. Now, that's nice to say in principle and teach people that, but doesn't take away the fear. So I think um, when I talk to people about acting on their on their situation, it's a deeply personal pos- uh, decision whether you want to speak up and take some of the risks, knowing that retaliation is prohibited. Nonetheless, that doesn't, like I said, take away the fear. So which is worse? You have to answer for yourself if continuing in the status quo is worse or is the risk to whatever you're afraid of worse. And I often encourage people to think about that with the notion in mind that if you complain and you feel it goes sideways, at least you stood up for yourself and did something. And does that feel better to you than saying, no, I'm choosing to keep my head down and not complain, and I'm going to look for another job or I'm going to take a different route? Because once you face those risks and dynamics and make a decision for yourself, that decision in itself is empowering. So hopefully reduces some of the sense of being um, helpless, that you actually have made a concerted choice. Now, in terms of where you can go with that, at Michigan State, there are a number of places you can go. They often depend on the dynamic that you're in, whether you have a union or not. You can go to your union. If it's um, if you don't have a union, you can go to HR. You can go to EAP and get advice. You can come to the work-life office and strategize about where your situation sits so that you go to the best source for you. If it's based on a protected class like race, religion, nationality, gender, sexual orientation, those kind of things, you can go to the Office for Institutional Equity, OIE, um, and see if if your situation fits their criteria for an OIE complaint. 
Um, but if not, I, I do have to say an awful lot of people have told me that they fall between the cracks and there's nowhere to go um, if your supervisor is a bully. It's very hard. So I would encourage you to come, frankly, at this point for faculty, staff, and postdocs to the work-life office, and we will help you find the right people for your situation. Reading some of Mortez's research, I know that one of the places people feel that is the only place they can go is elsewhere, and they leave their positions. Uh, so, uh, Barbara, can you talk a little bit about how we are working at Michigan State to improve our understanding of why people leave the university? Uh, what are we doing uh, this year to try to uh, make that better? So this office has, uh, for quite some time, been exploring how we might do exit interviews differently. So there is an option for people to do an exit interview either online um, or with uh, human resources when they leave. If there are things they'd like to say, there's an online resource that people are typically referred to, and you can put in your input uh, there on a form or you can meet with someone. There is not a tremendous amount of uptake of those opportunities, and so we don't hear from people who leave um, as constructively as we'd like to hear from them so that we could identify themes or trends or issues that we could concertedly address while protecting their privacy and confidential information. So one of the things the Work Life Office has initiated is an exploration of exit interviews that would use a common protocol but be accessible to people from multiple points of entry. So you could come to the Work Life Office or you could go to another you know, open sort of campus-wide resource center where you could have an exit interview with someone you trust and we would then compile just the thematic information in order to address issues and protect the personal information. So we're working with um, the onboarding and offboarding task force that Jake Lathrop is heading up to look at how we both bring people on board and how people leave when they offboard in, in order to improve us as a community based on what we hear from folks who do leave us. And Morteza, you know, people leave their positions. Uh, they might go to another university. They might find a job in um, the private sector. H how can we create a safer environment here at Michigan State? And I know you're doing some work nationally uh, to improve this. Your academic parity movement is looking at these issues. Um, what are the things that we can do to make it easier to report instances of incivility and academic bullying? Uh, what is the academic parity movement doing in this regard? So I think um, in order to like minimize incidence of academic bullying nationally, uh, we need integrated functioning of all the stakeholders. This is the, I think, the best way to answer, to address like academic bullying. And stakeholders are journalists who can basically cover the incidence of academic bullying and follow up what happens to the incidences. And if someone speaks up what happened to the perpetrator and the target, the other stakeholder, which has a critical role, which is a heart of, I would say, uh, bullying behavior is grant agencies. Grant agencies can basically want institutions to provide like bullying history of the uh, PIs. And this is a good uh, model that one of the grant agencies has done in UK. Uh, 
The other stakeholder could be institutions by themselves. Like I mentioned, they can educate well people. They can put like a specific budget to uh, to basically make sure that no one leaves institutions because of the no option that institutions can give them. The other part is psychological associations, I would say. The... Uh, sad reality is that we don't know how to deal with uh, like targets of academic bullying. It's like an e-cigarette. You heard in the news that like a couple of months ago a first death related to the e-cigarette in the US uh, uh, got confirmed. The problem was that the type of disease that e-cigarette caused for lung is not known for clinicians. So there are no particular cure for that. So I guess it's the same for academic bullying. We need knowledge around academic bullying, specifically for international students who can't basically uh, transfer their suffer to the, like, the clinicians that try to help them. The other part, again, we need help from legislators. We need rules on academic bullying because it's devastating because it's getting worse over the time. And uh, we are talking about the issue because it's growing fast in our scientific backyard. So I think without a, like a, a constructive teamwork between all stakeholders, we can't really address this issue. And about the parity movement, we basically try to shed more light. So uh, we try, I mean, the, the long goal is to have some lawyers and uh, psychologists to like come to the nonprofit organization and uh, base, uh, basically help us to uh, help targets in different way that we can. But now the primary goal and short-term goal is to shed more light on the academic bullying and and basically change the environment of fearing of speaking up about, uh, like, the incidence of academic bullying. I think there are, just to um, add to that, I think there are a number of myths that get in the way of setting standards and expectations or reminding us even of the value of civility and fundamental respect for one another and... So when we say we want our legislators to do something about this in principle so that there is, um, like we have laws against sexual harassment, you take sexual out of that, you get very close to what we're trying to address here. And that was done. So what we need to do is bust some of the myths about um, bullying, that it's just the other person's perception, or it's my academic freedom, or it's my freedom of expression, or... Um, you just have a thin skin, you know, buck up and grow a backbone. Those kinds of attitudes um, have very straightforward, credible, um, refuting perspectives that need to be part of the education so that we don't get stopped by someone saying, well, that was not my intent. How can you legislate something that is uh, so personal or so individualized in its interpretation? Well, if you have a principled definition, it isn't individual. It's the same stuff. Um, and the intent is not the driver, because there are still consequences, no matter what your intent is. 
and we do that with drunk driving. It was not my intent to drive over that child with when I'm under the influence, but you are nonetheless culpable, and the consequence is nonetheless there. So why do we say that because it wasn't your intention, there is no consequence? There is. Morteza, you mentioned committees. Um, we've talked about research. Uh, we're forming work groups at Michigan State, interdisciplinary work groups. And several of us around the university are trying to address these issues. So I'm going to ask you this broadly with two sort of prompts. Uh, if somebody's going to form a work group and conduct a research or form a committee, who should be on that committee? Uh, should it be academics? Should it be individuals who have been targeted uh, by bullies? Should it just be a random assortment of MSU faculty and staff? And if there's a committee or a work group that forms, uh, how are they going to get funded to do research on this topic? So my question is, based on those two elements, uh, who should be looking at this stuff and where are they going to get funded? So again, the committee, I guess, should be a combination of different expertise. Uh, it needs to have uh, psychologists, it needs to have lawyers, it needs to have targets, it needs to have, I would say, former perpetrator that either healed or fixed his or her behavior because their perspective basically can help and they know what to look for. Uh, so we need basically different lenses to investigate like incidents of academic bullying. And in terms of funding, there are uh, a few like uh, funding sources that I'm aware of like National Science Foundation have a few funds related to this. Uh, MSU has launched a fund called S3. We still need to try our best to convince funding agencies to recognize specific uh, like announcement for academic bullying. Hopefully this podcast is part of the light that shines on these issues. So I want to thank my guests for participating in this podcast, uh, Barbara Roberts, the Executive Director of the Work-Life Office, and Morteza Makmaudi, who is a faculty member for the College of Human Medicine and the founder of the Academic Parity Movement. We're going to put links of both the movement and the survey that you're doing onto uh, our podcast website. So thanks again, Barbara and Morteza, for sitting down for another episode of the MSU Work Life Podcast. We will talk with you next time. Thank you.